On Gulhani on politics this week, long COVID, 175,000 Scots suffer with this debilitating condition. This is what you get with a continuity candidate, the first activist, if you will. Announcements, inertia, but very little in the way of delivery. Cancers, tackling those with the poorest survival rates. One of the things these cancers have in common is that there are no as yet screening programmes to find them early. And crime. We need to do much more to support our victims. Victims also suffer financial stress as a result of theft, higher insurance premiums, loss of paid work. Hello, I'm Dr Sandesh Gulhani and welcome to Gulhani on Politics. Well, it's fair to say that the SNP leadership contest has descended into farce. In fact, even the president of the SNP, Mike Russell, says his party is in a tremendous mess. Lies, cover-ups, tens of thousands of once loyal supporters leaving the party, resignations. You couldn't make this up. Come next week, we should know who will replace Nicola Sturgeon as SNP leader and first minister. That is, if the election process isn't challenged in the courts by those who question the contest's integrity. As if rising above the turmoil, gaff-prone Humza Yusuf, the health secretary, or the current health secretary, because he certainly won't be uh, come the 27th, is still favoured by the SNP hierarchy to get the top job, despite his abysmal record in charge of transport, justice, and now the NHS. That said, it's the 70,000 SNP members who get to decide, not Nicola Sturgeon's cabal at Party HQ. It's not quite a done deal. On Humza's record as a minister, hardly a week goes by in Hollywood when we don't have to home in on his failures to grasp a health brief. The latest debate focused on long COVID, which now impacts over 175,000 Scots. On the 1st of March 2020, Scotland confirmed its first case of COVID-19. And I wish to pay my respects to the friends and families of the 17,000 Scots who died after contracting this horrible virus. And also to our heroic frontline staff who've treated and looked after patients throughout this pandemic. Tomorrow is International Long COVID Day, and we're focused on the rapidly growing number of Scots who survived COVID, but are still yet to make a recovery. If we cast our minds back to the summer of 2020, just a few months after our first lockdown, it was clear we were dealing with a new long-term chronic debilitating condition. Month in, month out, at my GP surgery, more and more patients were presenting with fatigue, dizziness, brain fog, pain in their joints, poor mental health. The alarm bells were ringing, but the Scottish Government paid scant attention. In this chamber, I underscored the urgent need for action to support long COVID patients. I also proposed a tried and tested solution to establish multi-specialty long COVID clinics based on the successful Hertfordshire model. But all our patients got was a mediocre response from the SNP Green Government and its current Health Secretary. In the same month that the Scottish Government produced its Long Covid response plan, there were 79,000 people suffering from Long Covid. But after eight months of dither and delay by the Scottish Government, that had risen to 150,000. This is what you get with a continuity candidate, the first activist, if you will. Announcements, 
inertia, but very little in the way of delivery. Today, an estimated 175,000 Scots are struggling with long COVID. The Cabinet Secretary provided me with a list of initiatives that he's funding to the tune of £3 million this year across Scotland's health board, including £20,000 for public health intelligence gathering in the Western Isles, £120,000 for self-management resources and peer support in the Highlands, and £178,000 to develop a long COVID rehabilitation pathway in Fife. But there's a lack of consistency with this approach. It's not streamlined. And there's a danger of exacerbating the postcode lottery in long COVID support. This is not localism, as John Mason suggests. Chest, Heart and Stroke Scotland calls for a national approach to ensure all health boards are able to provide a multidisciplinary care and integrated referrals to the third sector. No one should be told they have no access to support, as is happening in some of our communities today. I appeal to the new Cabinet Secretary for Health come the end of the month to listen to the terrific long COVID patient advocates like Long COVID Scotland. They know what they're talking about. Long COVID Scotland is essentially calling for what I proposed in September 21, the establishment of a network of specialist long COVID treatment hubs. There should be published clear referral pathways, meaningful holistic treatment must be available. Diagnostic tests and biomedical investigations should be the norm. There should be better guidance for employers so they can support their employees effectively. And people with lived experience must be at the heart of all decision-making, nationally and locally, and be involved in the design, development, delivery, review and evaluation of services. NHS staff are going above and beyond, but they cannot provide the service patients deserve because this SNP Green government has failed to tackle long COVID head on. Tackling long COVID effectively and with consistency is of vital importance for the whole of Scotland to speed its recovery from the coronavirus pandemic. I declare my interest as a practicing NHS doctor who struggles to get my patients into long COVID clinics. Six common cancers have a poor survival rate, lung, liver, brain, esophagus, pancreas, and stomach. We call these less survivable cancers as their average five-year survival rate is just 16%. Over 9,000 people will be diagnosed with one of these cancers in Scotland each year, a quarter of all cancer diagnoses. And these six cancers account for 40% of all cancer deaths, claiming over 7,000 lives in Scotland annually. To understand more, and to discuss how we can increase awareness of symptoms, I had the pleasure to speak to Lorraine Dallas, Director of Prevention, Information and Support at the Roy Castle Lung Cancer Foundation, and Heather Deary, who was diagnosed with a brain tumour in 2009. We're not talking particularly about rare cancer here. It's just when you're diagnosed with these cancers, the chances of survival to five years to one year is significantly lower. And, and uh, why, why is that? Do you have any examples of why that might be? Well, I'll, I'll set the scene a bit and then perhaps I can hand over to Heather who can talk about it from a very personal and unique perspective. One of the things these cancers have in common is that there are no as yet screening programmes to find them early. They are in parts of the body and have 
um, initial symptoms that aren't all that easy to pick up. So as a person, you might not be aware of major changes, even although you have one of these cancers. And the symptoms can also be quite vague. So that makes it quite difficult for a primary care doctor um, to pick up changes, which may be quite subtle and may have another 10 or 20 different explanations. But to identify when, for example, with lung cancer, when is a cough, a cancer cough, and when is it a, a just a general persistent cough so it's those that kind of knowledge that kind of difficulty of identifying the symptoms and being aware of the difference they're making to people that is is tricky with these cancers. Heather you you have a, a patient perspective for us so tell us what what's happened what's what, what what's your story? Um, I have a brain tumour um, I was diagnosed in 2010 but the diagnosis itself took 18 months and five different GPs um I was fainting I was going deaf chronic headaches terrible terrible headaches um vision problems and every GP I saw up to that point had diagnosed it as migraines or stress because I was at uni at the time. Um, it took my the fifth GP 18 months later to send me for further tests because he I'd gone to see him, it was my childhood GP. Um, I'd gone to see him and explained the symptoms I was having and he referred me to the hospital for further ENT testing because he thought I'd damaged my ear because of, of the hearing loss. So they sent me to ENT at the hospital who found nothing wrong with my hearing or my eardrums. Um, so referred me for an MRI and that's how they found it. But because the diagnosis process took so long and because a lot of my symptoms mirror a million other simple you know, health problems that can be easily cured, it took so long to get taken seriously and referred for an MRI. Whereas if there was a better diagnostic test, like the blood test that Dr. Paul Brennan has um, he's come up with, the a blood test that, that shows markers for brain tumours, that would be so much simpler and an easier and less invasive way to get diagnosed. So I am an early diagnosis poster child because if mine had been diagnosed early, they could have treated it better they could have removed the whole thing so I wouldn't be left with lifelong complications. When it came to your diagnosis, what would have helped you at that time? I think if GPs and all primary care had a better understanding of the symptoms of a brain tumour, because it's not the first thing that you'd think of, they sort of rule out everything else before they rule out a brain tumour when if they thought well this might be a brain tumour so we'll rule that out first so many people would be would would be living much better lives if they'd been diagnosed earlier so it, it's all about awareness of symptoms um and obviously nothing will help my situation but for people who are just starting to be diagnosed 
the blood test would have been amazing. And also the, the support, it seems to be a bit of a postcode lottery because some people I speak to have wonderful experience from start to finish and, and they have so much support. But mine was very, we were very unsure. Like I, I was told it's a brain tumour, but we don't know what kind it is. We don't know what the prognosis is. We don't know how we're going to treat it. You'll just have to go home and wait for an appointment for neurology. Let me give you um, a, a GP's perspective uh, on, on brain tumours. One of the first things we're taught as, as GPs is common things are common. And don't jump to brain tumour when it could well be a cold. It could likely to be a headache. And in the lifespan of a GP, one and a half to two patients would be diagnosed with a brain tumour. In the, in the lifetime of that GP's practice. Mm -hmm. So the first thought, I, I'll be honest, my first thought is never brain tumor. My first thought is always the common things that, that, yeah. that are likely. But I wonder if I saw you and for about six months, you kept coming back to me with the same thing. And I was thinking, well, do you know what? I thought it was a migraine. I gave you treatment, it's not worked. And actually, it's still not going on. It doesn't quite fit a migraine, because it doesn't, but it's the closest thing that we've got. Well, what else could it be? Could it be this? Could it be that? But I wonder if, if I had a blood test, and basically a non-invasive way of going, look, I've really given it a go on all these different things. Let's, let's do a blood test. I think I'm much more likely to do a blood test than I would be to do an MRI or CT scan. That, that's where, you know, technology can help us because I think everyone in the less survivable cancers environment recognises that the job of primary care in trying to sift through vague symptoms and even if you're the person with the symptoms, you might not be confident about what's causing it and how you're actually feeling. It might be quite difficult to explain it properly to your GP. So the more we can make use of technology to provide less invasive, less expensive ways of kind of uh, sorting through potential sources and getting to the people with a high risk of cancer, the better. So it's not going to be, we, we know there's not a magic wand for any of this, but there are practical ways of managing different kinds of cancer presentation that identifies the people at highest risk and gets them into diagnosis as rapidly as possible. And if we look at screening programs, for example, some of the key things that we need to look at for a screening program, you know, one, we look at whether it's important. Um, the other is whether the test is something that we can do that's not particularly invasive. You know, you, you can't have a screening program where you open up someone's heart to get a biopsy for example, um, we need to know that actually, if we do a screening program, that we can actually treat the patient successfully at that point. There's no point doing a screening program when it's so far along that, that you can't do anything. Um, and it needs to have some kind of cost effectiveness to it. And for me, a great example of this is lung screening. And I was speaking to a consultant and the professors who were doing this in this, this space of lung screening, and they're saying, actually, 50% of stuff they pick up has got nothing to do with lungs. They just, it's a CT scan and they're finding lots of pathology um, that wouldn't otherwise. So what do you think, Lorraine, of the idea of lung screening um, and you know, what's going on here in Scotland? 
Well, the National Screening Committee, uh, which is a UK-wide body, made a decision in September that lung screening for those at highest risk, which is partly age-based smoking and other um, industrial exposure to, to, to potential carcinogens, there is a benefit both in terms of cost and impact of screening. So that's something that is currently under consideration. We are waiting to see the rollout of that screening programme across Scotland. There is currently a trial happening, Lung Scott in Edinburgh, looking at how we encourage people to participate. And you're right, Sandesh, this is a technology that wouldn't have been affordable or manageable perhaps 15 years ago, but it is available now. It's detecting lung cancer early, which means we can offer effective surgical or other treatment and improve the outcomes for people. And that also allows us to build capacity in primary care for looking for the more unusual cancers, the more unusual lung cancers or other cancers. So there's a benefit for everybody in encouraging screening where the technology works. And I would hope, and after 20 to 5 to 30 years of Roy Castle Lung Cancer Foundation campaigning for this, we, we hope to, to kind of be one of the, the less survivable cancers that really does advance the cause of screening for these more difficult to find cancers. Heather, can I come back to you? One of the things that patients have said to me a lot is it would be great if they had peer support. And also it would be great if they knew the charity that was involved with their diagnosis. So it doesn't matter what the diagnosis was. If you've got heart failure, you'd want to know about the heart failure charities. If you've got um, cancer of your esophagus, you'd want to know the esophagus cancer. And in your case, it would be wanting to know about brain cancer charities. And so for peer support and charity, if you were diagnosed and maybe afterwards in the letter or at the time you were given that information about where you can get peer support uh, and you can contact charities, would that have helped you? It really would have. It, it, it would have helped and does help now because I'm heavily involved with the brain tumour charity, but for the first three years of my brain tumour, I hate the word journey, but there's no other word for it really. Um, for the first three years, I was sort of on my own with no peer support at all, no charity support, because you, you weren't given any information. You weren't given any, any information leaflets or, you know, and at that point, all I really Googled was about the tumour itself and the treatment options. Um, so if you were given at the point of diagnosis a list of charities with peer support and locally as well because considering I'm from such a small area there's a lot of people in this area who either have or have lost loved ones to a variety of different brain tumours so there is support there you just have to find it but being given the information at the point of diagnosis would, would be ideal. Fantastic. And, and this is something that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to pursue as well to get those charities. And I, I think, Lorraine, from, from a charity, um, my impression is that you would like everyone with lung cancer to, to call you. Uh, it, am I right in my assessment? Absolutely. I, I think one of the hardest things we hear um, on the phone, particularly our nurses on our helpline, is if only I'd known about you sooner. And I think there's lots of work. I, I've been working in the charity sector for almost 30 years. There is progress, but very often 
in healthcare, people don't think beyond the immediate, and it's a big job to do in terms of diagnosis and treatment. And they don't necessarily think there are other organisations, there are other support mechanisms out there, what it's like when you're going home in that phase where you might have weeks or months between appointments, waiting for your diagnosis, waiting for results. For people living with that uncertainty, the charities can be a huge source of support and there are lots of very credible, very professional organisations that are there alongside lots of really high quality peer support. And, and one of the things I think we could improve is ensuring that healthcare professionals feel confident in recommending those organisations. And, and I wouldn't expect, um, for example, some GPs to know about some really rare cancer charities, but I would expect the consultant who diagnoses that rare cancer to know of those charities, because that's the sphere that that consultant works in. Um, I, I have a final question. With the and 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 it's for for both of you, but if I could start with Lorraine, you use the word immediate there, and and actually, right now within our health service, it's basically on its knees. We 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 have record waiting times for everything. Um, GP practices are so busy that inundated patients. Some patients have given up phoning because they can't get through to even make an appointment, let alone you know, wait, wait to be seen. They can't even wait to wait as such. Do you feel that type of environment has on people with less survivable cancers? I think it's a really challenging time for healthcare just now and the barriers that are there for getting into diagnosis are considerable. However, we also know there's a massive amount of goodwill from NHS staff and a determination to find people with cancer earlier. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, in, in spite of the challenges that have been over the last few years in terms of the impact of the pandemic and funding issues and, and the many pressures that are on healthcare, people are doing their best. And I think it's really important that the benefits of early diagnosis, the impact it has on allowing people rap more rapid, more efficient care, and the NHS not having to spend intense resources at end of life. This is really important, and there's a benefit both for people with cancer getting that early diagnosis, and for people who are living with less survivable cancer. You know, even six, three, 12 months can make a difference to how treatable your condition is. So the better we can work together to make the best of what is a stressed and stretched resource, the more we should do. And Heather, I, I, it, it's the same question that I, I want to ask you, but more from a, a patient perspective. You know, when, when you've got this, the, the, this challenging period right now, to get seen, to get things, how is, how is that making you feel as a patient with your symptoms that you had? And might you have given up? Yeah, it's very, it's very stressful. Uh, the the NHS is so stretched, and we realise that. But at the same time, it's it doesn't help your situation when you're stressed about getting an appointment or getting a scan. Like I was supposed to be scanned every you know regularly, 
and all through the pandemic, there was no routine scans being done, which obviously, you know, the, the NHS was was far beyond stretched throughout the pandemic. But it doesn't alleviate the patient's stress when you when you know that you have this ticking time bomb in your head, and it's not being scanned to see if it's stable. That was really stressful. So it is. We we understand there's a funding issue, and we understand that you know there's only so many, so many staff and so many hospitals, and the resources aren't there. But it is, it is very stressful from a patient perspective, and you know that there's nothing really you can do about it. You just have to wait, wait your turn, sort of thing. But it is, it's stressful. Scotland has a prison population of around 7,500 with 25% of prisoners on remand. Many prisoners have families in our community, partners, children. Scotland has a prison population of around 7,500 with 25% of prisoners on remand. Many prisoners have families in our communities, partners, children, elderly relatives. By committing their crimes, they've knowingly put their loved ones at risk. There's financial hardship, stigma, mental burden. In recent years, our courts have had a marked upturn in common assault, rape, attempted rape, and threatening behaviour. The number of prisoners charged with sexual offences has indeed doubled over the past decade. Earlier this month, we debated the impacts of prison on the families of our prison population. And there were calls from the SNP and Greens for alternatives to prison, non-custodial sentences. The one big concern that the SNP and Greens miss, however, is the impact of crime on victims. The SNP and Greens don't speak up for victims. This was the thrust of my speech, which, unsurprisingly, did not go down too well with those seeking a soft-touch justice system. In recent years, our courts have seen a marked increase in common assault, rape and attempted rape, as well as threatening or abusive behaviour. In fact, Scottish Government stats find the number of people in prison for sexual offences has doubled over the last decade, and the proportion of the prison population held in remand has also increased substantially. Our criminal justice system incarcerates people in order to protect the public at large, sometimes by breaking up crime syndicates. Removing perpetrators from society is also punishment, while prison also provides support for rehabilitation, which is important to reduce reoffending. Rehabilitation stands a much better chance of success if we are strict about eradicating drugs from the prison estate and we strengthen mental health support. It's estimated that 15% of Scotland's prison population has a long-term mental health condition, with 17% having a history of self-harm. And while the Scottish Prisoner Survey found 39% of those convicted had used illegal drugs at some point while in prison, we can't let up on mental health support. And this should also be provided to our huge remand prisoner population who are not entitled to quite the same meaningful activity as convicted prisoners. My colleague, Jamie Green, has been very vocal on this problem and of self-harm and suicide of prisoners on remand. 
For partners and children separated from offending family members, their mental health is often so stretched to the limit, particularly the mental health of children, and this cannot be swept under the carpet. Yet we know that the Scottish Government has failed to tackle countrywide backlogs in mental health support, just as it's failed to tackle our country's mounting drug and alcohol deaths. Teenagers in Scotland refer to child and adolescent mental health services with eating disorders, suspected ADHD or autism are being told to expect a two-year wait for CAMS appointments, and parents with savings are being asked to go privately at a cost of around 1500 for assessment. This is simply not an option for many families, especially those of prisoners. And as for prisoners and their families who suffer with addictions, our Right to Recovery Bill should be at the heart of a health-led approach to combating addiction, which is so often the source of offending. The Scottish Prisoner Survey has found 45% of prisoners reported being under the influence of drugs at the time of their offence, while 40% said they were drunk. Everybody who seeks treatment for addiction should be able to access a preferred treatment option, unless it's deemed harmful by a medical professional. Now, the focus of today's members' motion is on prisoners and their family, but there is one glaring omission, the victims of crime and their families. Victims also suffer financial stress as a result of theft, higher insurance premiums, loss of paid work. They experience anxiety, loss of confidence. Many are victims of sexual or physical violence. Some victims feel forced to move away, change jobs. Others simply don't have that option. And families affected by the imprisonment of criminals should be treated with fairness so they can be supported to live healthy lives, free from stigma. And this should also apply to families of prisoners and also families of victims. Over the coming three weeks, I'm looking forward to hearing from SNP leadership candidates on how they intend to reverse an alarming increase in sexual assault and violent crime and for once start to emphasise the right of victims and their plans to support all families impacted by offenders. Well, that's all for this week's Bulhanian Politics. We'll be back next week when we might have a new First Minister. Until then, expect the SNP's implosion to continue. For now, I'm Dr Sandish Gulhani. Please subscribe, like and bye-bye.